Hi, I'm Gianna Volpe, and thank you for listening to The Heart of the East End on 88.3 WLIWFM, the show where we get to the heart of any matter at hand with folks from all walks of life on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. We stream online at WLIW.org radio and welcome your comments, questions, and collaborations of all kinds Live on the, the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York on October 20th, 2022. I'm Gianna Volpe on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. A New York State Supreme Court judge yesterday temporarily blocked town of East Hampton from closing its Wayne Scott Airport pending an environmental review. John Asbury reports on Newsday.com that the town in June had asked attorneys to begin the process of closing the airport following litigation surrounding East Hampton's plan to privatize the facility. The town had proposed new regulations like curfews and limits on daily operations as a compromise between the aviation community and residents tired of helicopter and airplane noise, but those restrictions prompted several lawsuits from those opposed to the changes. Aviation groups had challenged the town's closure, arguing it could eliminate between 7 to $20 million in spending in the town and also hurt charter and airline companies. The preliminary injunction by Justice Paul Baisley Jr. puts the town's decision to close the public airport on hold until at least the court-ordered environmental review is completed. The town wants to eventually reopen the airport for limited access by private planes as a way to control noise and crowding. In a statement last night, East Hampton Supervisor Peter Van Skoyek said the town board is assessing what impact the court's ruling may have and assessing its legal options. The town board remains committed to finding a resolution that is balanced and in the interest of the community. Petitioners sued to keep the airport open, including helicopter ride-sharing service Blade, local residents, East End Hangers, and Hampton Hangers, which sublease space at the airport, and others. They argued the town was violating federal law by not following the State Environmental Quality Review Act and said it was an attempt to circumvent the FAA's Airport Noise and Capacity Act of 1990. In other news, a preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board on the crash of a small seaplane that killed Kent Furing of Sagaponic on October 6 seems to put the spotlight on a single bolt in a key location of the plane's wing that was missing a nut. Michael Wright reports on 27East.com that the report offers no specific assessment that the missing nut on the bolt that attaches a wing support to the plane's folding wings was the cause of the crash, but it is the low lone component of the wreckage that the report singles out. Quote, the right wing strut was separated from the right wing. Uh, the report reads the bolt attaching the right strut to the right wing remained attached to right and was not fractured. However, the nut was not present. In addition, uh, the bolt threads did not exhibit significant damage. The report says that the plane's 80-horsepower engine showed no signs of failure nor malfunction that could have contributed to the crash and that other avionics components appeared to be functioning properly. Furing 57 did not own the plane but flew it frequently. According to friends, the plane was a C-MAX M-22, a small, lightweight, two-seat aircraft designed to be capable of landing and taking off from both land and water. The model 
Hearing was flying had foldable wings to allow it to be stored or transported in a towable container. According to the CMAX website, the in 2019, the same model of airplane crashed in Italy, killing its pilot and a passenger. That investigation appears to also spotlight the single bolt and nut that held together the plane's wing assembly as having failed during the flight, causing the wing to detach from the aircraft. The report released this week is only a preliminary accounting of the facts of the crash compiled uh, by NTSB investigators who spent several days this month at the crash scene working with East Hampton Town Police to recover uh, some uh, parts of the aircraft and talking with witnesses. The more exhaustive final report on the cause of the crash could take several months or longer to be released. Over in the courts, one clip showed Michael Valva shouting and swinging his arm in the garage of his center merch's home as an unseen child screams. Another showed Anthony Valva as the boy looked with pleading eyes into a surveillance camera mounted in the bedroom he shared with his brothers, sobbing as he said, I have to go pee. A third one showed the former NYPD officer now charged with second-degree murder in the death of his son, Thomas, screaming at the eight-year-old boy in the garage after Thomas answered a question by saying, I don't know. Nicole Fuller and Michael O'Keefe report on Newsday.com that yesterday, Suffolk County prosecutors showed the jury in Valva's trial in Riverhead 31 clips taken from the surveillance system installed at the home Michael Valva shared with former fiancé and current co-defendant Angela Polina and their six children. The clips were recorded between January 5th of 2018 and January 12, 2020 at the home on Bittersweet Lane in Center Marishes that prosecutors labeled the House of Horrors. Prosecutors have alleged Valva 43 and Polina 45 forced Thomas and Anthony, who were both on the autism spectrum, to sleep in the unheated garage for months before Thomas died. Valva has pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder and child endangerment charges in the death of Thomas and the alleged abuse of his eldest son, Anthony, then 10. Polina has also pleaded not guilty and is set to be tried at a later date. Additional videos will be presented to the jury when the trial continues in Riverhead today. And finally, Hampton's Observatory in East Hampton has teamed up with Suffolk County Community College to present a free virtual lecture this evening by 2017 Nobel Prize recipient uh, Dr. Rainer Weiss on gravitational wave astronomy. Quote, we're honored to host such a distinguished individual as Dr. Weiss and to collaborate with one of Long Island's prominent academic institutions to present such a momentous experience. That's Donna L. McCormick, Hampton Observatory's executive director, who said Dr. Weiss and his contribution to science will be remembered for generations to come. As reported in the East End Beacon during this Virtual presentation, which will begin at 7 o'clock tonight, Dr. Weiss will talk about gravitational wave astronomy, its significance to our understanding of the universe, and his vision for the future of this field of science. Admission is free, but reservations are required. You can go to hamptonsobservatory.org slash events or Weiss Talk, W-E-I-S-S, talk.eventbrite.com. Looking at the weather in Freeport in honor of the Ferguson brothers, 
as our first guest, Chris Verga, joins us for the Thoughtful Thursday segment at the bottom of the hour to talk about the imminent release of his new book, The Ferguson Brothers' Lynchings on Long Island, A Civil Rights Catalyst. Looking like a sunny Thursday with a high near 60 degrees, southwest wind 9 to 16 miles per hour tonight, mostly clear with a low around 45 degrees, southwest wind 6 to 10 miles per hour. Right now it's 50 degrees. Uh, we've got Buffalo Springfield, Mountain Men, Zach Winters, and Bob Marley and the Whalers. But first, the White Buffalo. Oh, darling, what have I done from the Prepare for Black and Blue EP of 2010 on the Morning and Midnight show that plays music from all decades and genres and speaks to folks from all walks of life, all because of you, the listener supporter of Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM, the heart of the East End.
Something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Being drawn Nobody's right If everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Field day for the heat. A thousand people in the street singing songs and carrying signs. Mostly say hooray for our side. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going I may just hop over Zach Winter's Buffalo, go straight to Bob Marley and the Whalers' Buffalo Soldier ahead of our interview with Chris Verga. This is Zach Winter's Buffalo on WLI-WFM. Mississippi River swells 
Mountain Man on WLIWFM, hopping over Zach Winter's Buffalo from the To Have You Around record of 2017. If you want to hear the track, you can always find the playlist from today's edition of The Heart on the Heart of the East End program page on WLIW.org slash radio. Stay tuned for Chris Verga. You're not going to want to miss this segment. I'm Jenna Volpe. This is Bob Marley and the Whalers and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. You're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
Bob Marley and the Whalers, Buffalo Soldier, leading us to the bottom of the 9 o'clock hour on Thursday morning. Uh, just after midnight, if you're listening to the replay, and that means it's time for our Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. Excited to welcome back to the show this morning, author and professor Chris Verga. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for writing this book, The Ferguson Brothers Lynching on Long Island, A Civil Rights Catalyst. You've done a lot of writing uh, that really puts together, at least for me, uh, parts of Long Island's history that I think is so important to understand. You know, we led in with Buffalo Soldier, uh, but actually the events and the, and the, the people we're uh, about to talk about um, – the soldiers predated the Buffalo Soldiers. Let's start by talking about who who they were. Who were the Buffalo Soldiers? Uh, well, the Buffalo Soldiers were a unit of soldiers, actually, um, uh, at the, around the post-Civil War period. Um, but then, you know, you got the relics of it later on in World War II. They were right. like the segregated black units, essentially, or units of color. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty much who the Buffalo soldiers were. Right. And, and of course... This is when the military was segregated prior to after World War II. Right. And let's talk about the Ferguson brothers and uh, what their service was like, at least uh, the four that did serve. Or could. Sure. Uh, um, so, yeah, three of them served. Oh, three. Uh, you had Richard, um, you had Richard, Joseph Charles and, and Joseph, Charles. right. Uh, Charles, Charles was part of the uh, Army Airborne Division, and he was a black paratrooper. Uh, Richard was a, uh, he was part of uh, the 3rd Army, Patton's 3rd Army, and he was injured um, during, the, uh, during the convoy when he got attacked, and he fell off the convoy, essentially. And Joseph, he was, um, he was actually uh, in the United States Navy and uh, served in the Pacific theater of war. Uh, Alfonso, the, the fourth brother, he, was, uh, he had underlying health issues, so he could not actually serve. Although he was... Um, he was yeah, they, uh, lived, they lived... I'm sorry. He was injured as well. His mother stabbed him, apparently, at some point, which was a little just yes. like uh, a moment that you pass by in the book, because, I mean, this is a, a, a thick text just completely contextualizing the historic environment around uh, which this 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 uh, racially charged killing happened uh, you know February 5th 1946 in Freeport uh, two of the brothers are are shot to death um, one is one is injured because what the bullet went through the one brother's shoulder and uh, ultimately killed Alfonso. Yes, yes, yeah. I went through uh, Joseph's shoulder and Alfonso was standing behind him. Yeah, that is correct. And this, um, you know... Yeah. It, and, it, uh, it, it was a very racially charged time, especially. Um, and uh, they were actually in their military uniforms um, when uh, they were actually shot, which gives more insult to injury there. Um, well, and this was... This was also a time, yeah. this is a time when even while in service, if I'm understanding uh, the, the timeline correctly, was this also the time where in which 
even if a, a black officer or, uh, you know, achieved a higher rank, white officers that were below them might not recognize that rank or, or uh, show deference to them? Or was this after that time? No, this is the exact time. If a black officer received a higher rank, the white, uh, the white soldier will not even salute them. Um, you know, and uh, <clears throat> to make it even crazier, uh, you also have, uh, I'm just contextualizing this. Yes, please do. Background. Um, when you have the Nazi POWs coming into uh, Long Island, the POW camps, um, when you're having them come in, they'll have the movie night, and the Nazi POWs will be able to sit in the front, and the black POWs will have to sit in the back. I mean, the black veterans, sorry about that, the black veterans will have to sit in the back. So, you know, it right. just shows the, you know, the respect the black soldier was getting during World War II. Right. Um, you know, Nazi POWs got to sit in the front during movie nights, uh, and uh, the black uh, soldiers had to sit in the back. Uh, the, uh, the black soldiers were not saluted by their white counterparts. Uh, units were were racially segregated, um, and uh, you know it, it's messed up because they were seeing just as much uh, of the traumas of war as the white soldiers. Right, absolutely, just heartbreaking stuff all the way through. Uh, some things I didn't know before this book. Uh, a bit about the Klan. I didn't know about the Klan's hatred for Catholics. I did not know that. Little Flower in Wading River was once uh, the Little House of Providence. Do you do you mind talking a little bit about what uh, Little Flower was? What the Little House of Providence was? Well, it was a Catholic orphanage uh, that served uh, kids of color um, that were orphaned in the city, and uh, you have a Catholic order that came out there to establish it. Uh, to create this orphanage for more open space, uh, you know, more of the country life, you know, to be more conducive to get uh, these kids out of the city. Right. And uh, essentially, the Klan burned it down twice. And, uh, you know, Little Flower, as of what we refer to today, they kept rebuilding and rebuilding Beautiful. despite the Klan burning it down. Beautiful. And this is all in the time that there's one in seven member, one in seven Long Islanders were Klan members. Unbelievable. Yeah, this was a very, very racially charged time. No, and 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 you know, there. It, when you look at a little bit of actual Long Island history, we've got that awful statistic that Long Island, um, at its peak, had the highest slaveholding population among all northern cal- colonies in Suffolk County. An estimated eighteen percent of households enslaved someone, and in Queens, uh, Nassau County was still part of Queens County. Twenty-seven percent of households. Owned an yeah. enslaved person. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, they, they definitely had uh, they had a racial hierarchy uh, that was established in colonial times here. And as we approach November, there is a lot of um, uh, it's it's tough to say a great moments, but really important stuff in there. Particularly um, the scene that was always described to me about um, the courtroom scene when a judge. Uh, declares the Montaukett tribe as not being in existence anymore. You really get to see that scene. I think it's uh, State Supreme Court Judge Abel Blackmar uh, determining if if a land purchase was illegal or if the Montaukett should be classified as a tribe, and uh, and and declares that the 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 tribe does not exist. But it's my understanding that 
there were many, many Montaukett people present. I believe this is the same scene. Do you know a little bit more about what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, it was the Arthur Benson case. Uh, He illegally bought uh, land um, that was Montaukett owned, and uh, he bought it on speculation because he wound up selling it to the Long Island. Well, his estate wind up selling it to the Long Island Railroad, and uh, it was illegally purchased. You know, uh, tribal land is owned communally. So, you know, no one individual owns the land in a tribal nation. And uh, so they went to court to see if the tribe had abandoned to grieve the land purchase, and uh, they were essentially declared extinct. And when they were declared extinct, the land purchase went through, and that was the last of the... uh, Montaukett uh, ownership of their land. And even to this day, there's a move right now uh, to actually give back the state recognition to the Montaukett population. I love uh, right to hear now, that. There's a bill on Kathy Holker's desk. Right now, there's a bill on her desk that she can sign that can actually reverse uh, some of these injustices. Obviously, you're not going to reverse everything, but just to acknowledge that they're they exist still is huge. Right. Um, and it's on her desk right now. And, you know, not to sound pessimistic, I think it might be another situation like her predecessor, her predecessor before her, mm. you know, who never signed the bill, you know, to recognize the non-talk it exists on a state level. It just goes so, to, you know, it, when it comes to civil, civil rights, um, sadly, it seems, at least to me, that things like the blinding of Sergeant Woodard or the, the killing of the Ferguson brothers are things that seem to sadly happen before any change occurs. You know, you call this book, the, the, the Ferguson brothers lynching on long Island, a civil rights catalyst. And yes, uh, this is one of the events that, that helped to spark a movement. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the title, why you chose lynchings uh, instead of uh, shootings and how it feeds into uh, the hor- historical context around which the entire book is structured. Sure. So let's break it down. When we, you got historiography, it's a school of thought. You know, everyone has different perspectives on things. When you break down the word history, it's his story, you know, but not everyone might share that same experience. So though this might have been seen as a shoot for most people, for the communities of color, this was seen as a lynching. So, you know, to give and voice yes, to the community uh, please do. Time, yeah. I gave it yeah, I gave it to the term lynching, you know, because that's how they store it as a lynching. So that's why I had this prerogative title, you know, Ferguson Brothers Lynching on Long And why essentially yes, wh- know, a large percent large percent of that community saw it as a lynching, you know, and you should call it what it is, not just a shooting. And why why and why, why would why would the community see uh, what happened, and let's talk about what happened and and why uh, it was seen as a lynching. Okay, sure. So I'll just break down the whole story for you. Please if you do. Mind. I would love um, that. So, so uh, Charles, Charles and his brothers. Charles was on furlough. He just signed up for the service again in 1946. He, uh, I believe, he wanted to make a living out of being in the military. He saw it as a great way to get some uh, mobility for his growing family. And, uh, you know, he didn't really have many opportunities in Long Island at this time. His family lived on Bennett Avenue in Roosevelt. They were, you know, 
they, they were still suffering the grips of uh, the Great Depression. They were still trying to come out of that. And uh, a lot of these economic opportunities that you see post-World War II didn't really hit Long Island yet. And, uh, you know, he saw, he saw like a great opportunity to make a career out of the military. Um, his uh, brother, Joseph, he was just waiting to get discharged. Uh, Richard was discharged because he was injured. Um, and, you know, Patton's third army. And, uh, but he wanted to stay in the military. So he was on furlough. These brothers were kind of united for the first time for a very long time since the war, because uh, Charles enlisted in 41. And uh, rather on furlough, they decided to go get pictures uh, in their military uniforms. And actually, one of the pictures is Charles's last picture he ever took um, before he was murdered. Awful. So they go to get pictures in Hempstead. They catch the bus to Hempstead. They go to a uh, beer garden. They have a few drinks at the beer garden. Um, and then uh, after pictures, uh, they decide to go back to uh, Freeport to catch the bus home to Roosevelt. And as they got there, you know, they decided to go to the Texas Ranger, get a burger. Texas Ranger was like this very known barbecue spot. Um, and after that, they're like, well, let's get a cup of coffee before we do that, before we get on the bus. So they go to the Terminal Tea Room, which is not there no more. It was a, a little coffee shop in the bus station, uh, and, and they refused service. Um, you know, some witnesses said the owner of the tea room generally would not give uh, he would not give service to people of color, um, you know, so he was received, refused service. Uh, he said he had no more coffee, and the urn was halfway filled with coffee. So Charles got very angry about this. His brothers got angry. He was like, you could serve me coffee. The owner said he offered cocoa, but that's kind of up in the air as well. And uh, but while this is all going on, it was common to refuse service to people of color or put them in segregated areas. You know, right before this case, there was another, right before this whole situation, months before, there was a whole case in uh, Franklin Square of a, uh, of, uh, of uh, people of color trying to go into a restaurant and them trying to put them at the counter versus having them sit down in the restaurant. Because Long Island is operating in a very segregated model that's left open-ended for the owner of the establishment to keep the establishment segregated. So going back to the tea room, it's really the same thing. Yeah, so and, and this Charles, and it, it's it's funny because uh, an officer has not yet entered the scene, and already we see the racial context around which this entire situation is wrapped. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It has a big backstory, and that's why I dove into it a lot in the book to give the backstory of a, uh, you know, the racial hierarchy during colonial period, the Montauk and everything else. Cause you know, you have to know the whole story. You can't just tell part of it. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these events, you know, they don't happen impulsively. They happen as a result of something. Right. So that's why it's so detailed. And, uh, so, make a long story short, Charles gets very upset. His brothers take him out of the restaurant. You know, there's words exchanged. You know, um, the owner of the restaurant says he tried going behind the counter. Uh, his brother said he just cursed him out. And then the owner of the restaurant called the police and said he was threatened. Now, this is where the story changes multiple times. Um, one, one narrative is the owner said, Charles had a gun. He threatened him with a 45. Uh, and then that was recanted on the grand jury. He's like, I never said that, you know, but though he said he said it originally. So that's mm. number one. No so gun, no gun was ever reco- recovered, by the way. Just 
putting a little no food gun. Yeah, right. that is correct. No gun was recovered. And you also got to understand, it's kind of hard to hold a gun in an Eisenhower um, coat. You know, it's very tight fitted. So mm-hmm. if you have a forty-five in that coat, it'll be very noticeable. So that's number right. one. You know, you got to look at it this way. Very tight fitted coat, the Eisenhower uh, Airborne Division coats. They're very tight fitted. So it's kind of hard to hold a forty-five in any of those pockets. And plus the pockets are very shallow. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. Um, so, make a long story sh- short, an officer is dispatched, and uh, he's dispatched about a broken window, and the, the uh, and then from the uh, the store owner, the tea room owner, uh, reported that you know the whole forty-five, the whole gun incident, and you know to be objective here, the officer was kind of on eggshells a little bit because there was an officer murdered in the town not too far away, and they were still looking right. for that murderer. Right. There's also a racial hierarchy here in the aspect. You know, the Freeport, um, the Freeport police chief did a solidarity march with the Klan decades earlier, and huh? you know, that that culture doesn't go away. That right. doesn't go away essentially. So let's look at everything here. You know, right. Um, so maybe this officer was acting in the culture of his precinct. Maybe he was acting out of fear of the uh, of the uh, officer that was gunned down the town over. So these are all possibilities. You know. But, you know, you can't forget the fact that Freeport had a very high Klan area. And, you know, the commissioner did do that solidarity march with the Klan. Um, so you have a culture there. So he's dispatched, and words are exchanged, essentially. And when words are exchanged, you know, the officer said uh, uh, Charles told him that he might have a forty-five, which doesn't make much sense. And while this is all going on, another person comes walking along who just helped them closing up the Texas Ranger called Herman Crummel. And he's against the wall, too, with all the brothers. So the officer, you know, he's saying, you guys are under arrest. Charles and him are going back and forth um, on, on uh, you know, on like, you know, this is what I get when I come back and all this other stuff. And this is where things go crazy. Military-issued shoes don't have a grip. They're very, they're like leather-soled. So, and this was verified in the autopsy records. We believe that Charles slipped. And when he slipped, the cop said he made a move to reach for his pocket. So when Charles slipped, the cop took the gun, shot Charles. The bullet went to the right clavicle out underneath the shoulder blade, killed him instantly. And then he, the cop turned around and shot Joseph, the other brother. The bullet went through the brother's shoulder and went into Alfonso's head, who was standing behind him. This is what we know. So the cop said he had his gun at waist level. And said Alfonso, the little brother, jumped out and tried grabbing his gun and the bullet ricocheted and hit Joseph. The autopsy records say that did not happen. Right. And that's pretty clear. And then, yeah, so it contradicts that. So then then, uh, then Herman Crummel, the witness that's right there, he says... He tried jumping out, um, you know, Alfonso tried jumping out and grabbing the gun. But here's the kicker. When Herman Crummel left the police station, he had a black guy. He had bruises all over him. So they believe he uh, made that statement not by his own free will. Right. So, uh, and then when there's another probe with the state, Crummel's story changes. It just falls apart and changes in front of the state. Well, speaking They're of saying, I don't remember. Right. Speaking of falling apart, let's let's hear ultimately what comes of this incident. Um, really, Bubkiss, other than 
Richard, one of the brothers, goes to jail. Yeah, yeah. So Richard goes to jail. He gets arrested and goes to jail. For, for what? What? It, what was after watching his this disorderly conduct? After he watched both his brothers die, you unbelievable know, shot, and to die, he actually goes to jail for disorderly conduct. And the judge gives a whole speech of saying, you know, it's all about the company you keep, and you know, this is on you. This happened, uh, and uh, he goes to jail. But I do backtrack on the judge, and I found out that the judge was endorsed by the Klan to run for that position mm. um, quite some years ago. So there we go. There's more Klan influence. You know, Rich is a person of color. You know, how does that judge perceive him when he hands down a sentence in a kind of a kangaroo court? Um, you know, and that's <laughs> and just looking at the proceedings, he didn't have no, no one to defend himself. You know, it, it was it was like it was a kangaroo court. He didn't even sleep. You know, he literally saw his brothers get shot. All and the and, and the all the appeals, all the appeal, the 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 jury. It was a whitewashed jury. Uh, you know, all the appeals are dismissed. N- no justice for the Ferguson brothers. Uh, I do have uh, Woody Guthrie and his um, detailing of the scene um, as performed by someone named Will Kaufman pulled up. I don't know if we'll have enough time. To play it because we went very long, but I, I will say that the event and the after effects of what happened on February 5th, 1946 in Freeport, which which helped spark the civil rights movement, sounded spookily like the last couple years throughout our country. I'm off. I'm, I'm often struck, as you mentioned in the introduction, how uh, these things are made into an argument that can't seem to square the fact that social justice and respect for the law are not mutually exclusive things that one can believe in both. Um, it's very weird how how it how it uh, there isn't that that critical thinking option where there can both things can be uh, can exist, um, but just mm-hmm. horrific. And um, uh, before I let you go. And even though that we're we're over time, can you just um, mention Wilfred Ferguson and Carlo Gibbons, who they are and what they may w- would want listeners to most understand about what happened? Well, Wil- sure. Wilfred is Charles's son. He passed uh, a few months ago, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, it was really I really wanted to see this book come out. Um, he just wanted to see his dad's valor restored you know he wanted to see his dad's valor restored charles is his father Mm. you know his father served bravely for this country um and you know he even signed up again you know he believed in the core values of this country and he just wants to see valor and he wants to see this case reopened and he wants to say hey he wants he wants wants someone to take responsibility you know like this destroyed a generation of family members you know the trauma that endured um, you know, cause, uh, Charles's wife, Minnie, you know, she never, she never came to terms with what happened. She was a single woman raising, uh, Charles's kids. The military pensions were delayed. Um, you know, she suffered these traumas. They were kind of like, uh, the community of Freeport and Roosevelt, they were like, like they were labeled by law enforcement. So what they want is they want to restore that family's, uh, they want to restore that family's respect. They want the valor restored to Charles, and they want to reopen this, and they want accountability that someone was wrong. That Amen. was it. Um, and believe it or not, that's huge when you're trying to bring closure 
you know, for, for a family that suffered generational trauma. Right. You know, it, it's huge. Just that recognition saying, oh, we were wrong on this. Uh, Carlo is the grandson of uh, Wilford, and he's been working very aggressively to uh, try to get this story out there. Actually, he's the one that approached me with the FBI files to actually write the book. Um, he, uh, he's working on a documentary, um, an independent documentary with uh, two people out there on the East End. And uh, I got called in to, uh, you know, to give my perspective on the historical analysis of it. And uh, I was taken back by the story. And then uh, Carlo hands me an FBI file. And, uh, you know, right there, I got sucked right into the story. It was, uh, you know, it, it became pretty much like uh, my day-to-day routine doing this research. Well, we can't so, wait uh, to yeah, have, so Car- he, yeah, we'll have to have yeah. Carlo on uh, when the documentary's finished. And we're, we're over time. I'm going to lead everyone into the NPR news break with as much of uh, this section of uh, The Blinding of Isaac Woodard um, by Woody Guthrie, as performed by Will Kaufman, uh, specifically the section that talks about the Ferguson brothers' killing. Um, And, of course, as always, so wonderful to have you on, Chris. Congratulations on the new book, and thank you for it. Uh, You can find it on October 24th. It'll drop the Ferguson brothers' lynchings on Long Island, a civil rights catalyst. Do you have any signings coming up, or... Uh, do we just ask our local bookstores to get the book? Yes, Barnes & Noble will be carrying it, so would Amazon, and most local bookstores, uh, Burton's and all the others, that are History Press vendors as well. Uh, yes, book signings are still being scheduled. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Chris Verga. This is Will Kaufman performing Woody Guthrie. Um, that was the Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. And you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Let's stop here and drink us a hot cup of coffee. That Long Island bus is a mighty long ride. We gotta keep your blood warm, our young brother Charles, because you've re-enlisted for quite a long time. You've been over the ocean and you've won your good record. But a private first class needs hot coffee the same as Alonzo and Joseph and just plain old Richard. Let's all drink a hot cup to each brother's name. Well, I hear this bus terminal has got a good tea room. Mr. Sklakis is the owner, there's his card on the wall. Let's sit over here and we'll wash down our troubles. And if you know a tall story, my brother, tell it all. But the waiter shakes his head, wipes his hands on his apron. He says there's no coffee in all that big urn. But in that 
glass gauge there it looks like several inches it looks like this tea room's got coffee to burn so we made him a speech in a quiet friendly manner we didn't want to frighten those ladies over there but he called for a cop on his phone on the sly and the cop came and marched us out in the night air the cop said that we had insulted the joint man he made us line up with our faces to the wall we laughed to ourselves as we stood there and listened to the man of law and order putting in his riot call. So then the cop turned around, he marched back to young Charlie, kicked him in the groin, shot him to the ground. The same bullet went through the brain of Alonzo, and the next bullet laid my poor brother Joseph down. My fourth brother Richard, he got hauled to the station, bowled out and lectured by the judge on his bench. Ferguson's was just looking for trouble and they hauled Richard off for a hundred day stretch this morning two hearses rolled out towards the graveyard one hearse had alonzo and the other took charles charles's wife minnie brought her three little children and friends and relations in old borrowed cars nobody has told these three little boys yet everybody rides crying and shaking their heads nobody knows quite how to tell these three children that jim crow killed alonzo and that charles too is dead now the town that we ride through is not ranked in Mississippi or Bilbo's Jim Crow town of Washington, D.C. But it's greater New York, our most fair-minded city. In all this big land here and streets of the brave. Who'll tell these three boys that their daddy is gone? He helped with the fascists and the Nazis to death. Who will tell these three sons that it was Jim Crow coffee that killed several thousand, the same as their dead? Will Kaufman performing Woody Guthrie?
The Blinding of Isaac Woodard, which also details the shooting deaths of the Ferguson brothers. Um, We just spoke with Chris Verga, whose new book, The Ferguson Brothers' Lynchings on Long Island, a Civil Rights Catalyst. It'll be out on the 24th. I'm Gianna Volpe, and you are listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, the weekday morning and midnight show, The Heart of the East End, playing music from all decades and genres and speaking to folks all walks of life all morning and midnight long on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. 88.3 on the FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in western Suffolk, online at WLIW.org. Long Island Local News, I'm Gianna Volpe on WLIWFM. An attorney representing the family that rented a Noyak home where two sisters died in an August fire criticized the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office and Suffolk County Police Department's homicide squad this week more than two months since the tragedy, for failing to bring criminal charges against the owners of the rented home where the fire broke out. Michael Wright reports on 27East.com that the numerous safety violations found in the home that could have directly contributed to both the start of the fire and the deaths of the two sisters, Lindsay and Jillian Weiner of Potomac, Maryland, should be investigated as a homicide where the potential for felony charges against the Sag Harbor couple who owned the home Melville attorney Andres Alonso said this week. The attorney also said that the online short-term rental portal VRBO, through which the family had rented the home, failed to ensure that the house was safe and met basic fire safety standards, and that ahead of their moving in, the site had misrepresented to the family caught in the tragedy that it had done so. The owners of the Spring Lane home, Peter and Pamela Miller have been charged by Southampton Town with 29 violations of town code and state fire and safety laws, including improper electrical wiring to an outdoor kitchen, where investigators have said the fire began, inadequate and inoperable smoke detectors throughout the house, and failing to have a town-mandated rental permit that would have required a thorough safety inspection of the property and remedied the safety hazards. Quote, this is a homicide, Alonzo said this week. The actions of the Millers or the inactions of the Millers fall squarely in the realm of criminally negligent homicide in the state of New York. End quote. The Wiener's attorney said that the family has no specific plans for any civil lawsuit related to the fire. Meanwhile, at the East Hampton Airport, a state judge has ruled that East Hampton Town cannot close its airport and reclassify it as private, even though the FAA has already reclassified it, handing a sweeping victory, at least initially, to aviators as well as residents of Montauk who had feared that closing or limiting flights to East Hampton would mean more noise over their hamlet. Michael Wright reports on 27East.com that New York State Supreme Court Justice Paul J. Baisley yesterday granted the petitions filed by three separate groups of plaintiffs against the town in May, seeking to stop the town from temporarily closing the Wayne Scott Airport so that it could be reclassified as private. 
Just, uh, Justice Baisley said the town's proposal did not adhere to either federal aviation statutes, which preclude it from imposing restrictions on flights outside of a federal process, nor with the New York State Environmental Review Law, because the main analysis of the impacts the proposal would have was not to take place until after the action had been taken. East Hampton Town Supervisor Peter Van Skoyek said on Wednesday, quote, the town board is assessing what impact the court's ruling may have and assessing its legal options. The town board remains committing, committed to finding a resolution that's balanced and in the interest of the community. And finally, Riverhead Town has extended its moratorium on commercial solar energy systems for another year. Denise Civiletti reports on RiverheadLocal.com that the town board voted unanimously Tuesday night 4-0 to zero, with council person Frank Bayrond recused to extend the moratorium initially adopted in October of last year. The moratorium prohib- prohibits the issuance of any zoning, building, or other licenses, permits, or other approvals to any person, entity, or premises for establishment, location, construction, or operation of a commercial solar energy system in the town of Riverhead. It was adopted in response to the number of commercial solar energy systems being built in the hamlet of Calverton. It did not apply to projects that already had applications pending. No further proposals for a broader moratorium have been publicly discussed by the town board. Looking at the weather in Greenport in honor of our next guest, Monica Halpert, the new director of the North Fork TV Festival. Looking like a sunny Thursday with a high near 61 degrees. Southwest wind 14 to 17 miles per hour. Tonight mostly clear with a low around 45 degrees. Southwest wind 8 to 13 miles per hour. Right now it's 50 degrees. Getting back to uh, that Buffalo Soldier track we played earlier got soldier songs leading you through the rest of this hour. James Taylor, Elton John, The Crystals, and The Oh Hellos. I'm Jenna Volpe. This is James Taylor, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. It was just after sunrise and down by the sea. Down on the sand flats where nothing will grow Come drumming and footsteps like out of a dream Where the golden green waters come in Just nine lucky soldiers had come through the night Half of them wounded and buried alive just nine out of twenty was headed for home With eleven sad stories to tell I remember quite clearly when I got out of bed I said, oh, good morning, what a beautiful day Why hello, say, 
Can I buy you another glass of beer? Well, thanks a lot. That's kind of you. It's nice to know you care. These days there's so much going on. No one seems to wanna know. I may be just an old soldier to some, but I know. How it feels to grow old. Yeah, that's right. You can see me here most every night. You always see me staring at the walls and at the lights. Funny, I remember. Years ago, I'd say I'd stand at that bar with my friends who've passed away and drink three times the beer that I can drink today. Yes, I know how it feels to grow. Saying, son, that goes on my jogging. Well, I may be mad at that. I've seen enough to make a man go out his brains. Well, they know what it's like to have a graveyard as a friend, 'cause that's where they are born, all of them. Don't seem likely. I get friends like that again, yeah. Well, it's time I moved off, but it's been great just listening to you. And I might even see you next time I'm passing through. You're right, there's so much gone. Got your memories. You got your memories. Deep cut. Talking old soldiers from Sir Elton John's 1970 record Tumbleweed Connection. The connection on the, the songs right now is Soldiers. Um, as we get ready for Veterans Day, 11-11, got the crystals on deck, and we are less than 10 minutes away from our next 
chatting segment, the hot sights and sounds segment, underwritten by William Riss Gallery, which is uh, either already or getting ready uh, to do a cool exhibit with the Full Moon Arts Collective, of which I am a fan. I'm Gianna Volpe. These are the Crystals, uh, North Fork TV Festival's Monica Halpert, um, the uh, inaugural executive director of that uh, festival, joining us in less than 10 right here on the Heart of the East. And you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome, and you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to play that. I did want to do it, though, because uh, just in honor of all of the Christmas um, stuff that happens ahead of Halloween, as a little joke. All right, we've got the Oh Hello's Soldier Poet King. This is from the Dear Wormwood record of 2015. Oh, no. 
the oh hellos. How about that band, the oh hellos? We've got another Glenn Campbell track. I played Glenn for you yesterday, and then I did hop over the doors yesterday. I'll play the unknown soldier for you this morning after Five for Fighting's Note to the Unknown Soldier from the Slice record of 2009. The Yardbirds bringing us back to 67 uh, as we slide one year before 1968 when the doors recorded The Unknown Soldier. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Glenn Campbell and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. And with spears He's all of 31 And he's only 17 He's been a soldier For a thousand years He's a Catholic A Hindu An atheist A Jain A Buddhist A Baptist And a Jew He knows he shouldn't kill But he knows he always will Kill you my friend For me and me for you He's fighting for Canada, he's fighting for France, he's fighting for the USA. He's fighting for the Russians and he's fighting for Japan, and he thinks he'll put an end to war that way. He's fighting for democracy, he's fighting for the rest, he says it's for the peace of all. He's the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die And he never sees the writing on the wall But without him, how could a Hitler house condemn him at the cow? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war And without him, all this killing can't go on Yes, he's the universal soldier and he really is to blame His orders come from far away no more They come from him and you and me And brothers, can't you see? This is not the way we put an end to war Did you play basketball 
Was there a sweetheart at home? Did you write letters? Did it make you better? Face the great unknown. Sam, did you feel alone? You were so far from home. I never knew you, but I know you're the best man I know. A daughter with a little one. I might go and think. Sam, you're the best that we had. You make me happy and sad. If you were here, I'd buy the beers. I'd shake your hand and say good man. And though the sun would shine about the same, it's a better. Kids will know your name. Five for fighting, leading us to the bottom of the ten o'clock hour on Thursday morning, just after one o'clock. If you're listening to the replay, and that means it's time for our hot sights and sounds segment, underwritten by William Riss Gallery, welcoming. To the show for the very first time, Monica Halpert, the inaugural executive director of the North Fork TV Festival. Good morning, Monica. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on this beautiful day in Long Island. Yes, we are so grateful to have the sun shining. It is getting chilly out there, but it is beautiful outside. Now, it seems like the North Fork TV Festival has found the perfect person to be its inaugural executive director. I would love to talk a little bit about your journey to North Fork TV Festival because uh, you've been in TV television for a long time and have certainly, I mean, when I saw you were a senior vice president and executive creative director of VH1, I was like, man, how perfect could that be? Not to mention Sundance Institute, uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, and Stanford D school. Uh, you've also uh, been the chief marketing officer in residence for NBC Universal, uh, CMO and editorial chief of BlueFly.com. So you are uh, certainly a TV and film person. Can you talk a little bit as a uh, North Forker what it's been like for you to experience the uh, North Fork TV festival and then to uh, become part of it? 
Wow, well, that's a that's a great introduction. I need to take you with me everywhere I go if I get that kind of introduction. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I. It's funny. I we have been in the North Fork for about tw- almost twenty four years now, and came out here really just uh, from the city where all that all the work that you just described, where I was based, and came out here just for a weekend, just to visit. Never never having been out here before. And by the end of the weekend, we were already renting the house next door from the friends where we were staying. So it's been it's 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 kind of a kind of a, a beautiful sort of circle thing that a place that I have seen evolve and and grow so much, but yet really maintain its integrity and its spirit of independence and this kind of it's such a cliche, but this keeping it realness that that I think is unique certainly in the East End, considering all the other forks around us. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a, it's a place that's very special and unique. I'm not sure if you spent any, how much time you've spent out here, but there's just something so um, consistent and uh, pure about the North Fork that as it even gentrifies in a good way, it does maintain that spirit, which I think is the perfect home for a festival that, celebrates independence, that, that champions artists and underrepresented uh, creators who are really looking to, to kind of make their, make their way in the world. So it's, I can't really think of a better place to have this, this incredible organization you know, that it's... I've also seen evolve over seven or eight years. I'll be honest, I, I was peripherally involved with it over the last seven years, not having spent that much time here, but now being here almost full time to get this opportunity to, with my experiences, you so kindly prefaced in film, in television, and most recently in film festival roles, to be able to oversee one of my own in a place that I cherish so much with a mission that is so close to my heart. It's kind of the perfect storm and trifecta of all good things coming together. Yeah, I was I was really excited, especially reading your history to, to see you coming in to an executive uh, director role and how and thought, my gosh, how perfect that it's also uh, the North Fork TV Festival's first time having a, an executive director. And I did want to return uh, to what you were talking about as far as the North Fork is concerned. Um, it holds a very special place in my heart. And what I've always said about the North Fork is that the North Fork chooses its own, but you also have to choose it back. Um, it's one of these places where uh, if you are a person that uh, exudes the same energy of of the North Fork, and, and I, I loved how you talked about how it maintains its character even through gentrification, I, I think that's sort of uh, the beauty about that place. And I think it's because that spirit is something that's so easy to get behind. I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, it's you, you said it so much more eloquently than sort of this idea of self-selection. But I, you know, it is it's not for everyone. Right. Some people prefer a much more, you know, especially for weekends. People want a scene. People want a whole, you know, they kind of want to replicate what happens in New York City and and bring it to their weekend experience, but it's not like that. Here. Or, is, or they go I, through, uh, they go through a sense of shock. There's, there's been many a uh, first, t- uh, first winter 
New York City person that's that's moving yeah, out first that. time that there goes that. through uh, you know uh, sort of withdrawals for the city. It, you're you're right when you say it's certainly not for for everyone, but for some, in fact, for many, as we've seen through the pandemic, as far as the entire East End is concerned, uh, some people are are kind of cityed out, and they come out here and cityed it's like <laughs> don't cityed out. Quote me, but I think that the North Fork has has seen. I don't know, close to a 30, I haven't, I spoke to a realtor recently, I think the number is somewhere in the 30s Not in terms surprised. of a increase in full-time residents from, right. from New York City, which is, it just, and same thing's happened for me. Right. I have to drag myself back to the city. I'll, <laughs> when I'm there, I'm thrilled, but can't wait to get back here. So I, I, I completely echo what you're saying. It's a, it's a, it's definitely a crazy time. Uh, for me, I, I am very lucky that I was able to find and afford something in the end of 2019, sort of seeing on the horizon what was coming, I thought to myself, if I don't buy something now, I'm not going to be able to compete with the city for rentals, let alone a place to live. But let's talk about the North Fork TV Festival and what's coming this yeah, weekend, right. especially about, uh, as it's as Jay Smith Cameron is concerned, uh, HBO's succession and the uh, Canopy Award. I mean, come on. I mean, is there anyone more sort of iconic than, than Jay Smith Cameron? She right. is, she's really a legend, truly a legend, crossing over from stage to screen to, to television, to small screen, large screen. She's, she's really a phenomenon and, and completely exudes the spirit of what the North Fork TV Festival is about uh, in terms of her independent spirit, the choices she's made, the bold and audacious choices she's made to go highly commercial or, you know, really just go for the story and go for the, really go the the raw because she feels that, or she felt that that was going to, that was good. That was going to be the best application of her talent and of her, of her passion. So we are honoring her and we're so, we feel so privileged that we're able to bring her out to the North Fork with some special guests, I must say, um, her husband also, Kenneth Lonergan, is an acclaimed director, producer, writer. So we're, we're surrounded with we're, we're surrounded with incredible talent this weekend. We're honoring Jay Smith Cameron with the Canopy Award, and the event this weekend is is really a kickoff to our 2023 season. Right. I was going to say it's usually a weekend, but I see that it's it's like a special event. It's a special event, and we it, it's I just started over the summer, so. I'm I'm in the process of rebuilding and rebranding and evolving the original founders mission which is still intact and relevant and foundational in what the future holds and that's what this weekend is about is announcing some of our new initiatives some of our new programs our vision for 2023 which will include a revitalized and vibrant festival next summer or fall we'll announce that in early 23 and some really exciting artist development programs that we'll launch over the course of the year, which I think I think it's are very, very excited about it. Oh my gosh. Well, we certainly share that excitement. Uh, there's always been a lot of really cool things that come out of the North Fork TV Festival, and uh, especially some of the the workshops that have happened in the past. Uh, so looking forward to this Saturday. 
October 22 of 22 right. at the very beautiful Claudio's. Uh, Northfork.tv for more information, folks. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Monica Halpert, the inaugural executive director of the North Fork TV Festival. Uh, these are the doors, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you just heard the hot sights and sounds segment underwritten by William Risk Gallery right here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, the weekday morning and midnight show, The Heart of the East End on WLIWFM. From the doors to the yard birds, little soldier boy from the little game's record of 67. 
here on WLIWFM and PR Radio. Soldier boy, how he's bored to be a toy Sitting on the mantelpiece was not his idea of peace So one night at half past one he ordered all the toys to come We told them all the game to play next day Teddy bears and wind-up toys together made a lot of noise. The other side formed into ranks, proud cause they had plastic tanks. High up on the shelf to see the soldier had to jump with glee at last before his eyes he saw a real war. Okay, so we had this soldier theme going through, but it's not really um, working for me right now. I'm going to tap in Little from Jeannie Green after Little Soldier Boy. Take it in a new direction. W-L-I-W-F-M. Lately, but I don't mind. There's no faking. Take all my time, cause you can make me. Mm-hmm, yeah, you charge me up, light my world with a spark of love. I just wanna take you anywhere you wanna go, and I will tell you anything you really wanna know. Cause I just want a little, I just want a little of your love. I just want a little, I just want a little of your love. I 
me, baby. We'll be doing the nasty. You got me living so fast, P. Yeah, we ain't taking no back streets, baby. Girl, you got me going, and I know I can't ignore it, baby. Girl, you got me going, like we whipping in a foreign, foreign, foreign. I just want a little bit of your love. Give it, give it. Heart jumping out my chest, grip it. Work of art, I'm loving your exhibit. I just want a little bit of your love. High in a mock yo drug. Can't tell cause they don't know us. Zip it. Cause I. I just want a little. I just want a little of your love. I just want a little. I just want a little of your love. Of your love. I just want a little. I just want a little of your love. Here's one I've been wanting to play for you. It's a brand new single from Weezer, A Little Bit of Love, on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM Magic Sam. I just want a little bit from the Black Magic record. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Weezer. And you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM 88.3 on the FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk, of course, streaming online to wherever you are at WLIW.org slash radio. A little bit, a little bit of love Take a look at where you started from And where you are today You climbed mountains, swam oceans You got knocked down and kept going In the end you know you got to say A little bit of love goes a pretty long way
goes a pretty long way. Magic Sam on WLIWFM, less than 10 minutes before the NPR news break at the top of the hour and the end of this edition of The Heart. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to Chris Verga and Monica Halpert, our guests on this morning's Heart of the East End, as well as our underwriters Green Hill Kitchen and William Riss Gallery, not to mention you out there, the listener supporter of Long Island's only local NPR radio station supporting us When you hear something you like, you can always give us a nice little donation to WLIWFM.org. I've got Rare Earth and Fits and the Tantrums, um, the I Just Want to Shine track from All the Feels. I believe that's what we came out of the gate with on the 100th edition of The Heart. We've got 
1,000 editions of The Heart coming at us. Uh, I don't even know when in a few months. Um, Between now and then, I just want to celebrate. This is Rare Earth on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, the weekday morning and midnight show playing music from all decades and genres and speaking to folks from all walks of life, all morning and midnight long, all because of you, the listener supporter of Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. the people. 